0: Welcome back to The Julie Norman Show, a podcast on politics, ethics, and current affairs. As the coronavirus has surged across the United States, so have racist attacks against Asian Americans. My guest this week is Jennifer Chen. She's a freelance journalist who has written two articles since the start of COVID-19, calling attention to this issue and drawing in part from her personal experiences. And this isn't the first time that Jen has woven some of her personal experiences into her writing on issues that really resonate with a lot of her readers and a lot of other people. A few years ago, she wrote an incredibly honest and moving piece about her miscarriage, and that ended up going viral via BuzzFeed and she still gets letters, emails, notes from people who read that piece, and um, men and women who, who felt that just resonated so much with things that they hadn't been able to put into words. So I've loved Jen's writing. I wanted to have her on the show to talk about her experiences and some of the issues that she's written about, but also the purpose of writing, especially in times of personal or collective crisis, why is writing important? Why does telling our stories matter? Why does it matter for the person writing, and what might it mean for readers? So this episode starts with some serious topics, but Jen is a lot of fun. In addition to what I've mentioned, she's also written on pets dogs kids wrestling most recently all kinds of fun things so by the end of the conversation we're talking about neighbors her new joyride newsletter and a lot more i really enjoyed this episode and i hope you will too so here's my conversation with jennifer chen all right jennifer chen welcome to the podcast hi thanks for having me (laughs) Um, So, Jen, I just want to ask you about a lot of your writing, and you've written on so many different topics, neighbors, parenting, dogs, food, like so many great articles that you've written, but you've written a couple pieces this year, one that just came out in the Oprah Mag this month um, that I think was entitled Racist Attacks Against Asian Americans, are still on the rise during COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And I think you had written a piece back in March also about um, the dangers of calling the coronavirus the Chinese virus or Kung flu and, and the racism uh, involved with that. So yeah. I just wanted to jump right in with those articles and what, what motivated you to write those pieces and what was that process like for you?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the March piece um came to me i've i've written for the print magazine and the digital director of the website for opramag.com reached out to me in march and she said you know um i'd love for you to write about why the chinese virus is racist and i felt very strongly about it and it was a quick turnaround but i thought you know and i my girls were my twins were at home and i They literally watched me type it because I did not have, none of us had any sort of resources for childcare. So, um, but I felt very strongly that this was so important to discuss because it was only the tip of the iceberg and that if it kept continuing that we would see more, um, more verbal assaults and physical assaults. And so when she asked me to write it, I said, yes. Um, I turned it around in a day. Um, I reached out to experts. I, you know, I I called on my Asian American community who already started experiencing things and just um, pulled it together very quickly. Um, But I had already had... It in my heart I just felt like I just needed to gather all the resources together um, and to the parents who are hearing this I, I was typing and my daughters were staring at me and I was like you guys have to figure out something to do I need to turn this in and so they just played in the backyard while I typed and I just made sure they were safe <laughs> but I was like I gotta get this done my husband was on his zoom call so I was like well I'm gonna pull it together the, the good thing is my sources got back to me quickly. Everybody who was involved in that article was on board 100%. And my editor was great on getting me, like, hammering out, you know, sort of a direction for it. But we um, came together. And the end of my piece um, is about how I put, at the end of the 2016 election, I put a sign on my front lawn about um, hate has no home here. And it's, it's in English and several different languages. And I had tied it into how I feel like hate is even closer to home than I had ever realized when I put that sign in in 2016. And I I felt like that was important to say because um, in the course of my piece, I had written about how I had found a white supremacist sticker on our street lamp all mm-hmm. up and down our main street here um, that we live off of. And that scared me. And then all of this stuff was happening and I, with Chinese virus. And I had experienced my own stuff and hearing my friends experience what they were going through. So it felt like very a hard thing to write, but I knew it was important. And that's why I was like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it as, as best as I can in a, in a sort of crazy situation. But it felt really important to write.
0: Um, and do you mind like some of the sources and friends that you reached out to, or even yourself, what were the kinds of experiences or the, um, that you wanted to tell in the
1: piece or you knew the stories that people were sharing with you? The stories that people were sharing with me, um, that I had sourced from Twitter, from friends who I'd known had, who had posted about it on Facebook, um, in New York city and LA were verbal, um, you know, get, I don't know if I can curse on your podcast. Oh,
0: yes. Curse away.
1: <laughs> but, you know, get get your fucking Chinese virus away from me. Like people just outright associating us as the face of this virus that we were spreading it. Um, mm-hmm. And the expert I reached out to um, is an Asian American studies professor. Um, gosh, I cannot remember her name off the top of my head. But she just asking about what she's been seeing in New York city and she had mentioned violence against Asian elders. And Mm -hmm. because uh, they don't speak English, they are easy targets in a sense because, um, they don't know what's happening. And, um, from what I was seeing in New York local headlines, it was a lot of the echoing what, um, people were telling me. My own personal experience was, and I had written about this in the piece, um, That the end, the very last family outing we ever did was a school preschool field trip to Legoland, which is not that far from San Diego. And my the hotel that we were staying at had a hot tub, and so we were in the pool, and my kids and I and my husband and I moved to the hot tub. I didn't realize you needed your hotel room key to get to the hot tub, and so. It was, wasn't a beautiful day. It was kind of cold and gray. And so we were really cold, freezing, all of us. And I was trying to get in. I couldn't get in. And then um, when it, some, some staff employee was like, oh, you have to use your hotel key. So Brendan had to run and go get our hotel key. But I, I looked at the people inside. And I said, you know, my kids and I are freezing. Can you please let us in? They looked a, a gentleman, looked me in the eyes and then looked away. And nobody moved, and I I quickly understood like this was sort of the spark of the end of February when things were starting to really kind of kick up with the virus, and I realized I'm Asian American, and I there was just a fear in their eyes of like I don't want mm. you to come in, and so I stood there and I thought I'm with my children, I can't I'm not going to curse, I'm not going to be mean, but what can I say, and I was angry, I was really angry, but what I had said was like, gosh, thank you all so much for being so helpful right now, I really appreciate it, I'm standing here with my kids and they're cold, and there were mothers, there, were a, there was a grandmother in there, there were several parents, several kids, um, and not just, you know, young kids, like kids who were maybe 10 or 11, no one moved. And I waited. I just stood there and I said, I really appreciate your kindness right now. Thank you so much for being so kind to my family. And finally a gentleman got up and let us in. And the guy who gave me the first dirty look, he left as soon as we walked in. Oh, wow. And I, I know that from the outside it might seem like, oh, maybe they just, you know, it's not racist. They didn't say anything to me directly. They didn't call me a name. but it was sort of my hint of like, you're not welcome here and neither are your kids. And I don't, you know, and I stood there realizing like I could either be really angry about it or I could just be loud and vocal until someone did something. Mm -hmm. And I felt like for my children to see that. And I said to them, I said, I'm upset that people wouldn't let us in. And I don't think that was really kind. Um, But later with my husband, when they were, in bed, I said, you know, that feels to me like this is the start of something, that where I'm just starting to experience something that it's going to keep growing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's, that's.
0: And I remember you ended that piece with that personal story, which, and I'll mm-hmm. ask you about this a bit more later about putting your your personal experiences in, which is, um, which I think makes your pieces really really speak in a very different way and in a really strong way. Um, but that was the piece you wrote back in March, right? Yes. And yes. then the piece that you just wrote in August, I think it was it was still on the rise. So is what you anticipated in March, um, did that feeling continue and what what then prompted the August piece and how did that, um, yeah, how did these experiences continue after that initial time
1: sure. when it was first breaking? So, yeah, um... I had just kept reading, and I read LA Times, I read the San Francisco Chronicle, I read the New York Times, and I just kept seeing local headlines and um, a bus driver in San Francisco being beaten for asking passengers to wear a mask. He was Asian American, Um, seeing headlines about elderly people in New York City, a woman being set on fire, um, an 89-year-old Chinese woman. Um, And then in Los Angeles, seeing more headlines. And there was a a viral video of a San Francisco tech CEO who had a racist rant against a family in a restaurant. And each one I would see get posted by my Asian American friends. And all of us were upset and angry. And like, why is this happening? No one's doing anything. And so I approached my editor at Oprah Mag and I said, It's still on the rise, and I want to write about how allies can help, because I actually do think there are people who want to help, but they just don't know how, and we're isolated. We're not allowed to be around each other, so what can you do? And so I reached out to um, one organization that came together called Stop AAPI Hate. It's a few different um, Asian-American nonprofits that have banded together to document the amount of racist incidences mm. to find the hot spots, to find where we need to focus our attention, where um what cities are being hit, who's being hit. And that data has been um so important because it gave actual numbers. And of course this people self reporting, so numbers could be a lot higher. And sure. Um because I'm sure there are Asians and Asian Americans who don't feel safe reporting um but what the, the data showed was that this has been on the rise since March and the when I filed that story and it was about 2000 incidences nationwide and in the state of California about 834 um since I think that was marking in July so okay. from March to July that's how much has been happening and not all of it has been verbal a lot. There has been a lot of physical mm-hmm. assaults and something that I talked to with, um, Cynthia Choi, who is the executive director or co-executive director of, oh goodness, there's a San Francisco Chinese, um, affirmation action, I think it's called. And she was saying that the, longer that this pandemic continues, the longer that we're gonna be the scapegoats for it. And mm. and it's it makes sense to me. I mean, I know it's awful what's happening, it but it makes sense when you are losing your job, when you're stuck at home, when you're with your kids. You wanna blame someone and we look like the people who quote unquote brought this virus here. We look mm. like that face. And so it's easy to find us at the grocery store and blame and Yell, and she had told me a story that I hadn't heard of. Um, that in a Sam's Club in Texas, um, someone assaulted a family with a knife that they grabbed from a, a Sam's Club shelf oh and stabbed the parents and children who were two and six. Oh my God! Sliced, sliced. Um, because he thought they were carriers of the coronavirus and that he was saving people by hurting them. And luckily, two people intervened. One was a Sam's Club employee, and somebody else was shopping and happened to be like a security guard as their job. But anyway, they they were able to disarm this this attacker. Um, but she had told me that, and I just felt like the only thing that I can do is spread awareness outside of my Asian American community because we had been talking about this since March. We like my friends, like I've seen on. Twitter, like, we've all been talking about this, and mm-hmm. so I thought, you know, wh- who I really need to reach is the people who, who don't know this is happening, or, you know, we've our c- country is going through so much inundation of, like, the election, Black Lives Matter, there's so much happening that it's, it's hard to know, you know, that these local headlines, I wanted to piece them all together, and I wanted it to be a way for allies to say, how can I help What can I do if I see something happening? How can I intervene on behalf of the victim? Mm -hmm. What should I do about the attacker? Um, And the the funny thing is, Julie, I actually started teaching my daughters this. And I know they are four. But I said, if you see someone doing something unkind, we are going to videotape it. We're going to take a photo of it. Mm -hmm. And and we're going to check on the person who it's happening to. And I know that seems really extreme, but I thought, you know what, if God forbid we're in a situation and it's just the three of us, I want them to be able to know. And I know that seems like a scary thing to say to my children, but I feel like I don't know, you know, when I'm out in public with my kids, I need to be more aware than I was in February. Yeah. um,
0: And I really like that in that piece that you included the, how to help, how to respond, how to be an ally, which you know, some of what you mentioned are just, if someone saw anyone doing anything, like in any kind of situation, really good tips on on how to respond and be there for other people and what's um, potentially a violent or dangerous situation. And that's, yeah. to me, that's not something that's often common in some articles that are that are documenting what's happening to have that, like what to do about it section and like that was that was just so instructive that you put that in there um but I was wondering what has the response been to the piece Mm -hmm. I mean like you said to me it was I guess because I've seen things on Twitter and you know Mm -hmm. even in the UK you know isolated things but um but your piece really referring to that data and bringing Mm -hmm. a lot of it
1: together what has been the response it's been interesting, because I, I what I can share Julie is that the March piece, um, a lot of people shared it, shared it, but then I got a lot of blowback from people who thought, who said to me, it's not real racism, name calling isn't real racism, it's funny if you think about it, kung fu is funny if you think about it, that's what I got back then, and hmm. it really was coming from people who are not Asian American themselves, but um, that was the response to March but a lot of a lot of people shared it and they were like I'm I thank you for writing this I'm I'm glad that I know this is happening the um August piece when that that got shared and I think what people said to me was I had no idea this was still happening mm. and that's what I really wanted and I really wanted to give some tools because from the people that I interviewed for that second piece they told me one woman said i she was in the park with her kids and a couple approached her for her dog being off leash but then it escalated to you know go back to your country and she said she screamed for help and no one responded oh, wow. and she was in a park and not to say that like you know obviously things are different right now because there's not as many people out the way it used to be but I just really wanted to echo of like, what can you do? I think some people get paralyzed or oh, I don't want to get involved or I don't know what's going on or, yeah. but, um, part of the reason that that San Francisco tech CEO was, had to resign and had to apologize and was called out was because somebody filmed him. One of the, the family members filmed him saying the stuff that he was saying and, and, it's powerful because if she hadn't done that, it could have just been something that they had gone through and oops, you know, yeah. here's this he got kicked out of a restaurant. That's it. But because of her action, there was, he had to respond to it. He had to resign. He had to acknowledge that he said this and he couldn't say, oh, I didn't say it. It wasn't me. Um so th- I think that was my goal was really raising awareness of what we can do and why it's important and that it's still happening. And honestly, um, one of the, the people that I interviewed, Assemblymember David Chu, who represents the Chinatown area of San Francisco, had said to me that he's in touch with his colleagues in um, Boston's Chinatown and New York City's Chinatown. And they are all seeing the same thing. Mm. And he's like, we are are, we've been saying this since March. We've been saying this for a while. So we keep in touch that we know and what to look out for. And I said, you know, I just don't think people are connecting the dots. Like they might see a local headline. Oh, that's, that's awful. But nationally, it's, it is, you know, something that really hurt my heart was in the research for this August story that I listened to a speech by Donald Trump at a rally in arizona at the end of june and he mentioned kung flu again Mm
0: -hmm. and his
1: the people attending all cheered and that to me was the what was heartbreaking is realizing we are fighting a losing battle because there's a lot of people who want to pin this on us and want to blame us and even though viruses don't have an ethnicity And when you have a leader in charge who's connecting, even if someone wants to dismiss it as a joke, there are people who are not taking it as a joke. And I have just, it just feels really wrong to exclude Asian Americans from the voice of our country by saying that we brought this here. We are the cause of it. We are spreading it. When in fact there's a lot of reasons why it's being spread and it has nothing to do with our race. (laughs) Um, So I, I felt that piece in particular felt like it was something I kept seeing. And and I was like, I have had enough of looking at local headlines. What can I do? What can I share? How can I get other people outside of my community to know what's happening? And I thought, she has such opramag.com has such a reach and my editor was so supportive of the last piece and so we worked really hard to make this as clear and and concise as possible with the um sort of service section Mm -hmm. because um I approached her with, I want people to have tools. I don't want it to just be another scare piece of like, oh, this terrible thing is happening. But here's some things you can actually do. And then for in, within our own community of raising an awareness that reporting the incidences mm-hmm. are the reason why we know where people are being targeted, where it's pr- predominantly Asian American women or Asian women, because and that's really important data because that makes me more aware when I walk around. And I, I think... The other thing I wanted to share, too, is that it's not these, like, tiny little towns in the middle of nowhere. It's Los Angeles. It's San Francisco. It's New York City. It's yes. Boston. It's those places that you think, oh, those are liberal cities. Like, nothing's happening there. There is some bad stuff happening. And yeah. I, I really, I felt shocked when I, I did that and found out more and more and what was happening. And so I just really wanted it to bring awareness because I think that there's an easy thing. In my mind i'm like oh i live in los angeles there's so many asian americans here there's no problem there is a huge problem and um i really wanted that to come across and i really wanted some tools and i didn't want people to feel like oh here's a horrible news story that i'm gonna read and then feel bad about the world and i really wanted to be like here are some things we can do and we need you we need all of us to look out for each other um I think Cynthia Choi had a great quote that she shared with me. If, if people of color are not looking out for each other, they're all, they're going to eventually all come for us. If we don't, you know, really think about how we're all in this together, anybody could get singled out. Um, Yeah, Yeah.
0: I wanted to ask you too on that note. I mean, the first piece obviously came out in March, the second in August and between that, obviously, we saw so you really the um, you know, the real emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, protests for racial justice. Um, how did that, how do you think that is affecting attention to racism against Asian Americans right now as well? Like, I, I know you, you personally and your family are, are doing a lot in solidarity with the movement. And do you think that's maybe helped bring more attention or how has that maybe changed the conversation around racism
1: more broadly or not? Um, I think that I, I think the black lives matter movement was so important and it's still so important has been, um, when it culminated with the pandemic, I felt like, I feel like there's a lot of us who want to join in, um, And it felt hard that, you know, when you have family and kids that you, I I can't go to a giant protest, but I, I feel like what this conversation has done is really cracked open, bigger conversations. Um, A lot of my non people of color friends are starting to read books about how to be an anti-racist. That's huge. That didn't, I mean, those books are selling out and that you know, they're asking me like, do you have books? And I'm like, yes, I have books at home. And so I feel like that is starting a conversation that didn't happen six months ago. So I'm mm-hmm. glad. And, um, a lot of, I feel like I've seen a lot of shakeups in terms of, um, race and how to talk about race. Um, but I, like when this, when I reported on the rise in attacks, I thought, you know, I know that there's so much happening. Like we're so inundated with news and bad news. And, you know, the protest took such, people got really, really angry about people protesting. And I felt like there was so much um, anger on both sides that I was like, how do I prop up this in the midst of so much other so so much you know and Mm -hmm. I thought you know what we have to like I think the conversations are a start to bringing change is the change going to happen as quick as I want no but I think that like that big national conversation seeing the protests seeing people really coming out and and saying this is not okay with us and also seeing within the Asian American community an acknowledgement of we haven't always been great allies to Black Americans. And so seeing the acknowledgement, but also the allyship coming from my community mm. and being vocal and saying Asians for Black Lives Matters, you know, that just to me felt like we're starting to to have really hard conversations about some systemic racism that also happens within communities of color. Like, it's mm-hmm. not like we're all, you know, we have issues within our own communities. So I'm glad. I'm, I mean, it's, it's awful. It's hard. And I think that the reason I had thought deeply about this story was how do I raise it up so that it doesn't get drowned out, but also acknowledges that there is also a huge race issue in, in this country and what we're experiencing is part of a bigger bigger national conversation so mm-hmm. I think they have to go hand in hand like I, 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 I want to quote Cynthia accurately but she had just a beautiful way of summing it up that we are in this together and that if, if we don't stand up for our fellow um, communities of color and say that's not okay with us then it's not okay, you know, it's not, we're going to be there too. You know, sure. we have to, to think about how we can come together and, and really support and be allies for each other. And that's what, um, so I was going to say with the August piece, I found a lot of people sharing it. And I would say thank you for your allyship for anybody who was an Asian American, because I know that there are, they are sharing with any audience that is broader than my audience you know and so I felt like it's important to acknowledge that allyship is having these conversations and being aware and knowing what to do how to help um and like you said like the stuff that I'm outlining in that piece you could do that for anyone any sort of like you see somebody being um awful to an older person you can step in you know how these are just way like tools just to be able to say how to do it safely how to do it in a way that could help the victim Mm -hmm. um, because you know unfortunately you don't know what the attacker has on them or whatnot so how can you best take care of the person who's being really um hurt yes uh well it
0: was I'll, I'll obviously link to both the pieces in the show notes, but I, mm. for me anyway, your your aims with it definitely um, you definitely came across and mm. and both pieces and especially reading them uh, together was um, it was it was definitely illuminating for me and it's I'm just thank you for writing both of those pieces mm. and the August one especially. Um, I wanted to pivot and ask you mm. about another difficult article that you had written. I think back in 2015 for BuzzFeed? Yes, in January
1: 2015.
0: Yeah. And this one, I believe, was entitled um, Why I Don't Want My Miscarriage to Stay Secret. Um, yes. And again, a intensely personal piece, but one mm-hmm. that I think probably spoke to so many women and men, families, couples. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I think was probably probably the first public piece I had seen on the topic of mm-hmm. losing a pregnancy. And um, and it was, and I would say since then, I feel like maybe, maybe some people have been a bit more open. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I will say just personally, after reading that piece, so many friends mm-hmm. have... Um, have, have expressed to me that they've had that experience and that I, I didn't know. But I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about that piece, how it came about mm-hmm. and what that
1: process was like. Um, sure. Yeah. I, I wrote it and actually here, I'll back up a little bit. So um, I, when I was experiencing it, I decided to pitch it to, an editor at BuzzFeed who was at the time taking personal essays and I just pitched her and I, the idea of it. And I sent the email thinking, I usually, I don't hear from editors right away. And I heard from her very quickly and she said, I'd love to, to read this. Can you write it by X date? And I'll be honest. I was like, Oh, I didn't think you would say that. Okay. <laughs> um, so I wrote a draft, and she and I worked on it. We, we worked on it around November, um, and it got published in mid-January, I believe. Um, and the impetus for the piece was that I was experiencing a second pregnancy loss, and the first one led to a second one, which led to me going to get a DNC, um, which... Didn't go correctly, and I was in the hospital. And there's just it led to a lot of like, wow, I don't know much about women's health in this regard. And um, talked to just two friends who were also um, trying to get pregnant around that time, and they both had told me they had miscarriages. And I thought, oh, I. The editor said yes, let's write it. And I, I worked on drafts. Um, and we were getting closer to publication, like finalizing it and things. Um, I got really scared, actually, before it got published. And I said, I don't, I don't think I want to do this. I think I'm going to pull it. I think it's too personal. It's too big of an audience. Um, I purposely picked BuzzFeed. At the time, I had written for lots of women's magazines. I could have sold it there. I felt that BuzzFeed would have the biggest reach would also be read by men um, and also be read around the world. And because it's online, it can be shared. Um, but when it came down to it, I was terrified. I hadn't told a lot of people. I, most of the, my immediate friends didn't know. Mm-hmm. But um, as I was getting scared, Brendan said to me, you're going to help other women you're going to help other women who are struggling with this and feel alone and feel like they are the only ones dealing with this. And that's when I was like, okay. Um, So we published it. And then my editor had said to me, like, part of, could you engage with the comments and um, respond to people when they post comments? She and I had no idea that it would have gone the way that it did. I, I couldn't keep up with the comments. I mean, there were so many. And I was trying to, like, say like, oh, you know, I'm sorry you've gone through that. And then, but the other thing is I got emails, I got tweets, I got Facebook messages from people who were you know, friends of friends of friends. And um, I I cannot tell you how many people reached out. Men, women, um, women who were currently going through it, who women who were who, who had stillbirth loss, um, just a floodgate opened, and I corresponded with people in India, in Scotland, in London. I mean, everywhere. It, and I think that it was really healing for me. And I know it's, it seems strange to say that, but it was healing because so many women and men said, "I have been crying. I have been sad. I have felt like I I, I made a mistake. I feel ashamed. I must have done something." And um, I think there's a real Sense of that no one is telling women because it's a medical thing, but I think there's not emotional comfort um, that comes with it and saying, I'm sorry, like that's awful because it's invisible. No one knows unless you tell them. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me, I still get emails occasionally about, and I still get people who share it with their friends who then say, like, oh, this really made a difference for me. Um, people have come out of the word works and i st- i mean it's 5 years old now more than 5 years old and i, st- I st- at least i owe something else pops up because it's always it's still going to happen it's mm-hmm. still it's not um, It's not going away. And the other thing I was going to mention, too, is that they had approached me about doing a video version of it, which um, basically is uh, like a brushstroke of my essay, but me in it and sort of visualizing it. And I was really against it. (laughs) I'll be honest. I mean, I was like, "Uh, I don't think so. And then Brendan actually said to me, he's like, you're going to reach a younger audience of women who – will be able to see this before they get pregnant or before they're even considering having children or even if they want to have children, whatever, but that they might know that this is something that could happen and it's not abnormal. Mm-hmm. And so that's what convinced me to do it. And I, I do not like being in front of a camera. And I, I he was with me during the filming of it. Um, but he's right in the sense that I did get, you know, younger women responded um, and said like, you know, I'm going through this alone. I can't tell my boyfriend or my mom. And, um, I think that was really the sad part for me. was some people, I was the only person they were telling because they felt comfortable sharing it with me because they had seen what I had gone through. And I would urge them like, I don't know you. And I'm so sorry you're going through this. Please tell someone who loves you because Mm -hmm. you can't go through this alone. And I don't know if they did. I, you know, that's I, I but I do know that, like, a lot of people came to me, and I was the only one they told. And that felt really scary because I thought, gosh, you know, thank goodness they felt comfortable to tell me. But I'm also not a part of their lives in the sense, like, you know, I'm not going to yeah. I can't give them a hug. I don't know who they are. So, um, you know, that piece was really hard to write and really hard to say. I'm going to just be... The public face of this but I felt like um, it felt really healing afterwards Uh to know I wasn't alone Um, the men that I heard from were dads who were like I am sad but I don't want to overshadow my wife's sadness or my partner's sadness Mm. so I have been quiet about it I haven't said anything And I'm telling you, and that's when I was like, oh, I didn't realize men are also feeling loss, or you know, the partners are feeling. I I shouldn't say men because there's obviously um, not just heterosexual relationships Mm -hmm. in this situation, but um, you know, partners had said like, I feel the sadness, but I know that my partner's going through the physical loss and the emotional loss, so I haven't said anything, or Mm. I'm keeping quiet, or I'm trying to be strong for them. So that's that felt really. Like something I didn't know was happening and allowed me to see that like it's 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 a bigger conversation that none of us were having.
0: Um, yeah. And on that note, I mean one of the beautiful things I thought about that piece is Brendan, your husband, who is a um, uh, major character for lack of Edward in that piece and how you how you're very open about discussing his his mm-hmm. grief and um processing of this with you that I felt you didn't need to put in, but it brought another um, just very human element to that, to the whole piece that um, Mm -hmm. I think probably did as it obviously did um, you resonate with men or partners out Mm -hmm. there as well. And I thought that was a really just special thing that you did. Um, And do do you think the conversation around Mm -hmm. miscarriage and around pregnancy loss has changed since you wrote that piece
1: since that was I guess over five years ago now yeah I think so because I've seen more pieces I've seen um you know celebrities being like you know saying that they've gone through loss I've seen it in like you know people magazine and I think the reason I say that is that I think when people share their truth and honesty that inspires others to not hide and feel shame. And, and I think, you know, in particular, um, I was involved with like a PSA with Glamour in October because that's when it's, um, infant and in pregnancy loss awareness month. And it was, um, a few celebrities actresses who came together and did a PSA that it's happened to them and it's happened to them and um i think that is important to get it in front of others so that they don't feel alone and they think um from 2015 to now i've seen more women share publicly and whenever they do i said thank you for sharing your story i'm sorry you've gone through that loss but i think it it makes it easier for anyone else going through it who maybe doesn't feel comfortable to share, to know that like, they aren't alone. They aren't isolated um, in this. I've seen more women share about infertility and just the journey to becoming a mom, um, being more transparent, which I Mm -hmm. think is just going to help all of us because before I wrote the piece, I just thought everyone got pregnant and had kids like, like, Easy, easy. You just go off birth control and here you go. And not understanding there's a lot of women going through like infertility treatments or going through adoption and the circus that can be and sort of just all of the stuff. And it opened my eyes to seeing that there are so many different stories out there and that sometimes we just see one.
0: Mm -hmm. I think
1: that's the only way it gets done. And so, you know, I I feel so... Inspired, I think something that I was going to connect it to, which does, it sort of doesn't make sense, but I think of when Me Too came about, I think it inspired a lot of people to speak up for things that they had seen that were just Inhumane, And I felt like that was just a, it cracked open a door of like, this is happening to women. This is not right. And then that opened the door for a lot more conversations to happen to say, mm-hmm. these things aren't right. We're seeing this. And, and I feel like being truthful and honest, um, is just really the best way to, to crack through some of that veneer of like, thinking that, you know, everyone has children easily, or that, you know, um, that it's easy for women to work and not be harassed. It just, I feel like it, these kind of really uncomfortable, hard conversations just open the door for people to share their truth, share their vulnerability, and feel like they are um, not alone Mm -hmm. and isolated, especially since we're so isolated right now. Yes. Yeah.
0: I'll ask them, what, what for you is the purpose of writing? Is it um, for social change, for connection, for expression, for entertainment, all of the above? Like what, Mm -hmm. what is it about
1: for you? Um, You know, these, the pieces that we've talked about have really come out of a, a place of it's something from my heart that feels really important to share and know that I'm not alone. And, um, I feel like what I love to do with my writing in the journalistic side and and these personal essays and these sort of reported essays is to really take something that's important to me and bring it to a larger scale and, that includes like organizations I love. I've, you know, I've profiled nonprofits that I've just seen do amazing work and then being able to go out and interview the people that it they're, it's affecting and seeing it. Um, I interviewed a nonprofit called Hello Neighbor that I'm so proud of that a piece that I, I pulled together on that for real simple and to know that they got a bigger national audience to read about them and for people to read of like how people are coming together in a time that feels very divisive. Mm-hmm. There are people helping each other. Um,
0: and I love that of, piece. Can you, yeah. can you just say what Hello Neighbor, uh, because sure. that was a great piece.
1: Yeah. I found them, um, through actually their publicist had sent me an email and it is a nonprofit based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They connect, um, refugees and immigrant families to, um, families who are living in Pittsburgh, who are American, and they basically have a mentor mentee relationship and they spend a year, um, having meals together, doing outings. And then the families help each other. Um, the families that I interviewed did, um, help them, you know, with driver's tests or how to like sign up for, um, community classes to learn English, like things like that. But it also, what really came out of it was like these people who might not have met otherwise becoming friends and learning about each other's cultures and cooking each other's food. Um, It just was so beautiful to see them come together and learn about the countries that the refugees were coming from and welcoming them into their home and saying, you know, how can I help you? Um, And then just, I mean, part of what I... I got so much joy of was like, I talked to the families um, together as a group and the laughter, the the similarities, because um, some mentee and ma- mentor matches would be um, families who had kids similar ages. So these kids would like just play together and grow up together and go do things at the library together. And so I just really loved that because I felt like in a time when it feels like us versus them to see people really, um, take care of each other and love each other and be neighborly. Yeah, <laughs> it was just a joy. So for me, like I love those kinds of stories because to bring that to a national audience, to like interview those people, to just say, "Hey, there's something really good going on." Um, I love that. Like that to mm-hmm. me is just so such a perfect marriage of all the things I like to do and I'm good at. And um, I I feel like I've committed to writing more stories that mean something to me, whether it is um, speaking out for my community or if it's highlighting um, amazing nonprofits that are doing good, good work to change the world. That to me is has just been the highlight. My own personal work, like um, books that I'm working on or things like that, they all have to mean something deeply to me because I, you know, I'm a mom of four-year-old twins and I'm like if my time is super valuable especially during the pandemic when I also was you know managing childcare, it's like I I knew that I had to really be concentrated on what I worked on because um, that piece like I said that I wrote in a day I was like this meant something really important to me and I wanted it to have the weight that it did I wouldn't have done that for just anything else, you know? And to me, that was like, I have to do this for my community. And I think it's something that I want my daughters to someday know that I did um, for a bigger goal. Um, so, yeah, I think, are, yeah. So, what are you working on now? Gosh, I'm working on one of my last Oprah Magazine print stories about an organization called Heart of Dinner. They're in New York City's Chinatown. Um, They, so in connection to what's happening in Chinatowns across the country, businesses are are businesses down, but also violence against elders is up, and so a lot of seniors are are trapped indoors obviously also because mm-hmm. they're the most at risk but also scared uh, mm-hmm. of leaving their homes um and so these two women their um, partners and one of them has a restaurant in in Chinatown and she decided to take her restaurant friends and come together and feed um all the Asian elders within the five boroughs of New York City and so oh, wow. that's I'm writing about this amazing community effort to feed, but how many people have um, written handwritten notes um, in Chinese and Korean um, on the packages, the food that's been donated, chefs that have um, been paid to make these meals so that they can have some recovery effort um, during the COVID crisis. So there's this wonderful symbiotic circle that they organized that basically helps all the local restaurants but it helps the community helps elders and all these volunteers are are drawing on the brown bags like it's heart of dinner if you go on their instagram you'll just see the most beautiful packages of food and so they're delivered to seniors so that they have healthy nutritious um food that's from their culture and it's um it's just been such a beautiful effort. So anyway, I'm writing about them. In, that's going to be in the November issue of Oprah Magazine. Um, and I'm nice. really excited about that one because I love it. It's just so heartwarming. I, and um, they work so hard. And they've fed more than 21,000 seniors um, oh, wow. in New York City. Yeah. They so started long. making 300 meals a week. And th- just the two of them together. And they realized they had to scale up to be able to feed as many people as I wanted to feed. So, yeah, that's amazing. Um I, Oh, wow, I,
0: that's great. I will yeah. look forward to that.
1: Yeah. I'm excited for it.
0: Um do you have any advice for aspiring
1: writers? Yes. <laughs> I have a lot. I'll narrow it down to <laughs> um the best advice I can give especially during this time period when it feels like um meet, there's more media outlets shutting down and publishers and all that stuff um my best advice is to keep writing and the one story I'll share in relation to that is when I was 18 my freshman year of NYU I went to see Toni Morrison read from her latest book and stood in a very long line to get my book signed and I was so nervous she's one of my favorite writers and I just said to her I was trying to think of something to say this whole time that I was on this line and I finally get to her. I mean, she's signed like hundreds of books at this point, And I, I just said, I'm a, I'm a writer. And she looked up at me and she said, okay, keep writing. And that has always stuck with me because truthfully, it's really easy to quit. It's really easy to not do it. And so, especially right now, it's like, oh, I've got dishes and kids and meals to make and you know, laundry, all that stuff seems like more important. Um, But keep writing. And if there are parents who are listening, or anybody who's taking care of somebody else, I should say caregiver, actually, because I'm sure there's people who, who um, are caregiving for other people and can't devote the time they want to writing. I wrote in 15 minute chunks when the girls were first born. Um, It was probably the worst writing I've ever written. But it was like, you know, when you're a runner, if you don't, train and practice you can't run a marathon yeah and to me when my writing mentor david hockman had said just write in 15 minute chunks set a timer for 15 minutes and write and i was like i don't know what you're talking about i don't have 15 minutes (laughs) I said, okay but like so what i found was that i was pumping breast milk at like four in the morning uh, for 15 minutes because that's how long i would do my sessions for and i was like okay i'm gonna write um in the dark and I don't remember what I wrote. I I don't think any of it made it to anything, uh, truthfully. But it was just exercising a muscle just to Mm -hmm. be able to say, okay, I wrote that. I wrote 100 words. And it was like a little light in this tunnel of, you know, how am I going to get there? And that muscle got me through being able to write a draft of a young adult book. It got me through... That exercising that muscle was the reason I was able to write that piece in a day, that 1200 word story in a day, it was because I had exercised for years, my girls were four at this point. So I was like, okay, I know what I've got to write, I know I have a, I'm going to put it together and outline. That's not something I would have done if I hadn't done that before. You know what yeah. I mean? So it feels like It's amazing when he said that to me. I'm like, what? What are you gonna do in 15 minutes? But if you set a timer and you actually just get a notebook out or your your laptop or however you write, it's amazing how much 15 minutes actually is, you know. And you could write 100 words or 200 words, and that adds up over a week. Mm -hmm. That adds up over a month. Um, That's been the best writing advice I've ever gotten because, especially now, especially for anybody who's caregiving, it feels impossible. And then definitely when the pandemic hit, I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to take care of my kids and write and meet these deadlines and all this stuff. Um, So the exercising that muscle years ago has been the reason I'm able to like knock out things the way that I can, because I just been doing it. It's, you know what I mean? Like you can't run a marathon if you've never run a marathon. So, right, you have to keep it up, even if, like yeah. you said, even if it's not your best stuff, just, like, it keep was, doing it. Yeah. It was, I don't, I never used any of it. I think if I did, I had to rewrite it because it was just, I mean, in <laughs> the dark, kind of. But it just was not a, a way for me to remember I had a part of my brain that was, like, still, you know, my own in the midst of not, you know, having much time to myself. So,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. But,
1: keep writing and and doing these little chunks. I tell that to everyone and everyone thinks I'm crazy, but I honestly it was the thing that got me through probably, you know, the first year of having the girls born. I was like at least I was able to write something. Yes. Like, I rewrote all of it. It's not none of it's ever going to see the light of day, but um yeah, I I feel like that was what's made me stronger during the pandemic to be able to write stuff under like, literally just like, you know, my kids in the backyard, me watching them and be like, okay, I've got to just do this and trust that I can do it well. Yeah. Um, so yeah.
0: Um, Jenna,
1: there's so much more
0: I could ask you, but I, I, I'm mindful that you have your twins and everything else going on. So is there anything we haven't touched on that you just wanted to mention or comment on? Yeah. Um,
1: gosh, I, I feel like Something I was saying to my husband last night is like, I feel like the thing that I love to do is to cheerlead people. And it's been such a time of, you know, a lot of fellow writers are feeling down and out because more media outlets are shutting down you know, all this more rejections, editors are leaving all this stuff. And I like to be a cheerleader. And so I'm launching a newsletter called joy ride um, because I want to give people like a little pep talk every two months, because I feel like that's something I love doing. I've been, I send emails to people who are sort of like struggling or feel like, oh, I don't know what to do. And um, I have a wonderful writing community. And I thought, you know what? I actually really like doing this. So if anybody wants to sign up for it, um, it's jenniferchen.substack.com. And I, I just decided this week, I'm going to put it together um, every Friday, every other Friday um, to bring some joy to people and, and cheerlead them on through whatever they're going through. Because I think it's a tough time. I mean, I, I remember that first week of the pandemic when the the girls were home and we were working and I thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, and I, I had other writers um, who were like, just one foot in front of the other, you know, and I needed that. I needed that reminder of like, I'm not going to conquer everything, some things are going to fall to behind, but just one foot in front of the other. So I want to do that for others because I, I think that is so helpful. And I just, I, I really enjoy doing it. So, and, um, so that's, that, yeah, that the, is great. I did not know you were there. So it's joyride,
0: yeah.
1: substack.com. Yeah. Okay. And the, I, I've called the newsletter joyride because I want it to be, um, a little pep talk. And then I'm going to have an article, a book. Um, a TV show or movie or a podcast that I've um, that I would recommend. And I'm trying to focus on Bi- the BIPOC community um, and, and amplifying those, those folks who I've either read or seen that I'm like, this is amazing. And then I'm going to end it with um, a short, like I'm grateful for um, dot, dot, dot. It's something I do with my kids every night. We have a gratitude list that we say what we're grateful for that day. Um, hmm. I think it's been so helpful during this pandemic, especially for them and for me to hear them say like, Oh, I'm grateful. Like we'll just, just something simple that they'll say, I'm grateful for um, playing or I'm grateful for the thing I ate today that they really loved. Um, you know, that helps me to end the day and think, okay, they're like, even though in the midst of all of this, there's something that we can remember to be happy for and grateful for, um, just kind of gives me the joy at the end of the day, especially <laughs> some of these days where, you know, the girls will have a really tough bedtime. And I'll just feel like I'm so grateful that you shared all those feelings with me. And even though I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this has been so hard. So I I, I wanted to end my newsletter that way. But I, I I wanted it to be not something that's like slamming your, your door every day. But it's like every two months you just get a little a little pep talk and sort of a reminder of some good things happening. Oh, that's the other thing I was going to include is um, a nonprofit or an organization that I've just caught, has caught my attention because I've written about them so much. A lot have, a lot of them have come in my inbox and I'm trying to highlight ones that I might not be able to write about. um, That's fantastic. Yeah. I just, there's so many, I want people to remember there's so many good things happening because there's so much bad right now. I mean, there really is. And I, I'm not trying to, um, Like gloss over the really big problems we're facing. But I I do want to acknowledge that there's some good stuff, good people. There is a lot of people doing good work um, that needs to be supported.
0: And some of this
1: fun stuff, too. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, like in my, the one I'm going to launch on Friday. Um, I recommended The Babysitter's Club on Netflix because I, love, I loved The Babysitter's Club, but I actually was amazed at how modern they took things and really um, brought to light transgender issues, race issues, um, uh, health issues. I mean, it just was, I was surprised, frankly, that a show would acknowledge some of the stuff that they did, and I thought they did it really well. So I want to just amplify that and just say, hey, I didn't know this was, like it's great but there's also like they're highlighting stuff that you know we're not ever in the books yeah <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> but I am uh,
1: blown away by it. so anyway that's I want to bring a little joy to everybody's day and I feel like that would be my way to to give it um everybody a pep talk
0: <laughs> oh well, I love that um and on the note of recommendations, I usually yeah. end the podcast with asking for recommendations also, mm-hmm. either books or um, or articles, podcasts, mm-hmm. anything. And I'll obviously link to your articles as well.
1: Gosh, I have so many. I The good thing about quarantine is I've read a lot more um, than I've ever read before. Um So I'm trying to narrow it down is that the podcast I love right now is Brene Brown's Unlocking Us. I am a huge fan of her work, but her podcast, which she launched just before the pandemic or during the pandemic has been such a saving grace. She's interviewed so many amazing speakers um, ranging from, you know, social scientists to um, anti-racist speakers. Um, She's, just covered so many of the tough topics that we're dealing with, but she's done it in a way that's, I feel like, um, honest and true and vulnerable and real. Um, so I, yeah, she's I, she's great. Yeah. I just, I find like, it's gotten me through the quarantine cause I thought, Oh my gosh, here's somebody doing the work and, and bringing on speakers who are en- enlightening me on stuff that I wasn't aware of. She had liver and cocks on talking about, um, transgender issues that I wasn't really honestly not aware of the, of of just what's happening in their community. So I really love that. I feel like she's but she's doing it in a way that's fun and still mm-hmm. serious at the same time. So I highly recommend that podcast. Great. Yeah. Well, Jen, this has just been great
0: chatting with you today. Oh. And again, just thank you for all the great articles and writing that you're doing, which um Again, I'll I'll link to in the notes, but it's just always a pleasure reading what you're writing and always a pleasure chatting with you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you once again to Jennifer Chen. You've been listening to The Julie Norman Show. Original music for this podcast is by Kevin McLeod. If you like this podcast, please give us a rating. Subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tell your friends, tell anyone you know. Stay well, and please join us next time.